Well, good morning and welcome again to Veritas Church. If you're new with us, we're really glad uh, that you're here with us this morning. And this morning we are uh, kicking off a series in the book of Micah. And so if you've got your Bible, uh, you can make your way to Micah chapter 1. And if you grabbed one of those black hardback Bibles on your way in, it's going to be on page 728. Uh, but Micah chapter 1 is where we're going to spend our time together uh, this morning. Uh, now, when I was in middle and high school, every year our youth group went to the same youth camp and had the same uh, camp speaker every year at camp, and uh, he, was, he was interesting, uh, to say the least. Uh, for one, he preached without shoes on every night because he said he was standing on holy ground like Moses at the burning bush. And uh, you quickly learned where not to sit when he was preaching because he would do things like uh, he would get on the first pew and stand on it and preach from there for a while and he would pace and sometimes run uh, up and down the aisles of the auditorium as he's preaching. And you learned uh, that you didn't want to sit on the end of a row because he would get up, uh, if you were on the end of a row, he would get up in your face and be about six inches away from your face staring into your soul uh, while he was still preaching to everybody else. And he did this like quite a bit every night uh, in each sermon to multiple different people. And uh, his sermons were a lot like the way he ran all over the room. They were very passionate and very all over the place. And uh, we went to this camp from the time I was in eighth grade until after my senior year of high school. And uh, every year his sermons just kept getting a little bit further out there. But after my senior year, we decided to stop going uh, to this camp because that summer, the, the summer of 2013, he predicted, uh, based off of some uh, calendar he had found that tracked the Jewish feasts of the Old Testament, that the world was going to end in September 2016, which I think, I, I could be wrong, but I think that didn't happen. Uh, and so by that time, we were all sufficiently weirded out enough to know, like, we really need to find a new option for camp. Now, I, I tell you that because this morning we're, we're walking through the book of Micah, not counting Jonah, which reads much more like a narrative and a story. Uh, this is the first time we've ever walked through and preached through a prophetic book in the life of our church, our almost 10 years together uh, as Veritas Church. This is the first time we've been in a prophetic book, and so uh, because we've spent so little time uh, just in our preaching ministry, preaching through the prophetic books, and I would guess that most of us have spent uh, a, a little amount of time as well reading the prophets in our own Bible reading, I think it's easy for many of us to envision uh, something like my camp speaker when you hear the word prophet, that this prophet is some guy with wild hair standing and shaking his fist, yelling at people to get off his lawn and repent before they burn in hell. Uh, a prophet is someone who has a janky sign on the street corner uh, kind of yelling at you and making crazy predictions about the apocalypse. And that's a really skewed picture of what a biblical prophet is. The biblical prophets, they give us prophecies of the future, not predictions, uh, because they're inspired by God. This is God speaking His Word and declaring His Word through the prophets, and God declares the end from the beginning. And so God, through the prophet, is telling us what's going to happen in the future. These prophets are not making their best guesses about what is going to happen. And the prophets do warn us about God's judgment, but they don't do it like a kind of a crazy person standing on a street corner and screaming at you, because you 
God knows we would not hear that message. We would tune that out. I mean, just think for yourself, when's the last time you actually seriously weighed and considered something you heard a street preacher saying when you passed by them on the street? Uh, instead, the biblical prophets are poets. They use language in a poetic and artful way to help unsettle us and wake us up to the reality of our sin and of God's judgment and the hope of His salvation. They use artful language, to, to, to borrow a phrase from C.S. Lewis, to help sneak past the watchful dragons, the defenses that we put up that keep us from seeing where we're walking with sin and where we're walking away from Jesus. They use language in a way that helps unsettle us and wake us up and, and calls us back to Jesus. And so this is what Micah is going to do uh, in the first chapter of his book this morning. And so let's look at this together. We're going to read through the entire chapter uh, together, starting in verse 1, the very Word of God to us today speaks to us like this. It says, The Word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of His place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under Him. And the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire, and all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable, and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not at all. In Bethlehem, roll yourselves in the dust. Pass on your way the inhabitants of Shafir in nakedness and shame. The inhabitants of Zanon do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Maroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The houses of Akzeb shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Merishah. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile." Uh, let's pray for God's help on our time together. Father, uh, thank You for Your Word. Um, thank You for a Word that, uh, even in a place like this, is 
unsettling, uh, is not um, sort of the, the, the happy, clappy, inspirational things that we might be used to. Um, God, thank you for this word, word and this warning of judgment. God, would you use it in our hearts and our lives to wake us up to the reality and the danger of our idolatry? Would you help us to see how serious our sin is? Would you help us to see where we've turned away from you and, and begun to worship other gods? But, but God, even more so than that, would you help us to see your glory in the face of Jesus? Would you help us to see the hope of Jesus that this passage proclaims to us? And would you transform our hearts and lead us away from our idols as you do so? God, I pray that you would in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, let me first situate you with where we're at in the Old Testament story, and then I'll introduce you to Micah the man, uh, kind of like it does in verse 1 for us, and then we'll walk through the rest of this chapter together. And so, uh, in the Old Testament, when God takes His people out of slavery to Egypt, He promises them that He will bring them into the promised land, and He does this. He fulfills this promise, and after they're in the land for a while... Uh, they asked to have a king rule over them, just like all the other nations have. And so the first king they appoint for themselves is Saul. And Saul uh, is not a great king. He does not do so hot, and so he's eventually replaced by King David. And King David uh, is much more of a man after God's heart. And after David reigns, his son Solomon uh, reigns as king upon the throne and really ushers the people of God into the high point of the Old Testament. God's people are dwelling in peace and prosperity. God is dwelling with them in the temple in Jerusalem. I mean, this is life the way it was meant to be. Everything's really hunky-dory, but uh, for all of the glory of Solomon's kingdom and for all of Solomon's wisdom, that doesn't last for very long because Solomon is also an idolater uh, who goes after and worships other gods. And, and this leads to the split of the kingdom. And so after Solomon, uh, his son Rehoboam is an incredibly uh, massive fool, and he ends up splitting the kingdom. And so Jeroboam, no relation, uh, takes the ten northern tribes and, and leads them into idolatry, and they become known as Israel, or the northern kingdom, uh, and the two southern tribes, Judah and Benjamin, remain with Rehoboam, and they become known as Judah, or the southern kingdom. Uh, and after this, as time goes on, what you see is that most of the kings who fill the throne in both the northern and southern kingdom are idolaters just like their forefathers were. All the kings in the north are just as bad uh, as Jeroboam. They follow the example of Jeroboam of leading God's people into idolatry and sin, uh, and while there's a few good kings here and there in the south, in Judah, they also mostly follow the pattern of being idolatrous kings that lead the people of God into sin. And so uh, way back before this, all the way in the book of Deuteronomy, God promised that if they did this, if the people of God walked in idolatry and unfaithfulness, that if they broke the covenant that God had made with them, then God was going to carry out the curses of the covenant on them and send them into exile. An enemy nation would come in, take them out of their land, make them slaves, destroy their land. This is what God promises will happen as an act of judgment upon their sin. And so this is what the prophet Micah is called into. Micah is called as a prophet to go proclaim God's warning of judgment against uh, both the northern and southern kingdoms for their sin. And, and verse 1 shows us this. It says, this is the word of the Lord that came to Micah, 
during the days of three kings in Judah. And this word concerns both Samaria, which is the capital city of the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem, which is the capital city of the southern kingdom. And so uh, Micah is prophesying about both north and south, and this is during the time when Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah reign as kings uh, in Judah, in the southern kingdom. And so Micah prophesies for about 40 years during the reign of of these three kings, and if you want to know more about this history, at a, at a later time you can go read 2 Kings 15 uh, through chapter 20, but, but what's important to know is that Micah is going to prophesy that God's going to send both Israel and Judah into exile for their sin and their disobedience. And, and this, ha- this actually happens during the reign of Hezekiah. While Hezekiah is reigning in the southern kingdom, Assyria comes in and takes Israel, takes the northern kingdom into exile, and then after Hezekiah and Micah are gone, Babylon comes in and takes the southern kingdom, Judah, into exile as well. And so Micah is sent primarily to the southern kingdom, to Judah, to warn them and call them to repent and warn them that if they don't repent, judgment for their sin uh, is coming. And that's how Micah begins verse 2, right? He doesn't waste any time getting right into it, that God is coming from His holy temple to be a witness against God's people. He's coming to judge them, and His judgment against them is going to be earth-shattering. It's going to be apocalyptic. The mountains are going to melt like wax melts off of a candle. The valleys will split open like a Walmart sack that has too many groceries in it. God is just going to uh, uproot all the foundations. He's going to judge them And verse 5 tells us why he's coming against his people like this to judge them, that it's for their sin. It's for their transgression. And what is their sin? What is their transgression? Well, he says for Jacob, for the northern kingdom, it's Samaria, the capital city, the hub of where they worship their idols. And for Judah, it's the exact same thing. Because in verse 5, when it says, what is the high place of Judah? Uh, High places are where people would go to worship their idols and false gods. You would put the idol on top of a hill or on top of a mountain because they thought that was closer to heaven, that would get them closer to the gods. And so Micah is saying that their idolatry has reached Jerusalem, the capital city of the southern kingdom, where God's temple was, the center of where they're supposed to be worshiping God, instead has become a hub for idols. Idolatry has reached all the way to the heart of of their kingdom. And so because of that, God's going to judge them. Verse 6 says He's going to strip them to their foundations. Um, Oklahoma is pretty well known for its tornadoes. And uh, where my parents live, where I grew up, uh, is lovingly called Tornado Alley because that seems to be the path that the tornadoes always come up. Um, So, for example, we lost a house in May 1999 when I was four years old. A tornado came through and picked up the roof, turned it, and then put it back down on the house, which made the house uh, not livable anymore. And so we lost that house. And then we almost lost another house uh, in May of 2013 uh, when another tornado came up, really almost that same path. And so the, the tornado in May 2013, 10 years ago, it was rated as an EF5 tornado, which is the highest uh, a tornado can rate. It was over a mile wide, had winds over 200 miles an hour, uh, and once it, it, once it touched ground, it was on the ground for 17 miles and close to 40 minutes. Uh, and so it missed our house by a block and then kept going east and wiped out most of Moore, a suburb of Oklahoma City, 
uh, and just like destroyed it, leveled so much. And I, I remember it was so crazy. Uh, in the aftermath of this tornado, once they had cleared some of the roads away, just driving like just 10 minutes from my house where I had grown up my entire life. And I mean, it literally looked like the apocalypse had happened. There were just uh, city blocks where neighborhoods, houses, restaurants, businesses, uh, an elementary school had just almost been completely level. Uh, it was so wild to just be 10 minutes from where I had grown up my entire life, and you drive and like entire city blocks were just gone, like nothing had ever been there. All you could see was house debris and trees stacked up at the edge of the road that lets you know that a neighborhood uh, had once been there. I mean, it just destroyed everything. And Micah is saying that that's what God's judgment is going to be like. That, that God is going to come in and strip Samaria to their foundations, going to reduce them to rubble like a tornado had come in and just destroyed everything. God says He's going to destroy all their idols and reduce them to rubble to show that their idols are powerless, that they can't actually do anything. And, and God's judgment is going to be exhausting and total. It is going to bring them to their knees. This is what Micah is talking about in verses 10 through 16 as he begins to name all of these different towns in Judah and Israel. He's, again, he's being a poet. He's using some wordplay here, playing on the names of these towns. And so, for example, uh, Gath means tell. And so he's saying, don't tell it in tell. Don't talk about it in tell. You need to just weep instead for the judgment that is coming. Uh, Bethlehaphra means dust town, and they're going to live up to their name, and they're going to roll in the dust with shame because of the judgment that is coming. Shafir means beautiful, but their beauty is going to be exposed to humiliation and nakedness and shame. Zanon means march out like an army would, but God's saying you shouldn't do that because you're going to be destroyed. Beth Izel uh, is the house of taking away, and their standing is going to be taking, taken away from them in judgment. Meroth means bitter, and they're hoping for relief. But if even Jerusalem, if even the capital city is going to be judged for their idolatry, they shouldn't hope for relief. They're only going to know the bitterness of God's judgment. The people of Lachish should get on horses and get out of town because they're going to be judged for being the passageway that brought the idolatry of the northern kingdom into the southern kingdom. Verse 14, they're going to give parting gifts to this other town as they get out of town before Assyria takes both of them into exile. And Micah says the northern kingdom might come down to Judah and take away and conquer Akzib, which was a town in Judah in the southern kingdom, but even if they do that, it's going to be a deceitful victory because Assyria is still coming in to take them out of their land and take them into exile. It'd be like being on one of those wipeout trampolines and jumping over the bar that uh, is coming for your feet and thinking you've won, not realizing you're about to get blindsided by the one that's coming for your head. Because verse 15, God is again going to send a conqueror who will conquer them and when Micah mentioned the caves of Adullam, this is a, one of the caves where David hid from King Saul. And they're going to have to do this again. They're going to have to hide and be on the run because verse 16, they're going to go into exile. This is what Micah is lamenting. If you got lost in the specifics of all of those town names, the big point is that judgment for their sin is coming in the form of exile. An enemy nation coming in, 
taking them out of their land, making them be their slaves, and destroying and raising their land. It's going to be a total, complete, exhaustive judgment on God's people for their idolatry. They're going to be shaken to their foundations and put to utter shame. And I think walking through a passage like this, kind of the the natural question that leads us to is, isn't that a little bit overblown? Like, isn't God just overreacting a little bit here? Because Micah's message is basically like, yeah, you guys can run, but you can't hide. Everything you know, everything you love is about to be taken away from you in judgment because you are wicked idolaters, and you just need to get ready for that. And, And are things really that bad? Yes, if we're going to sit with the weight of this passage and let it hit us in the way that it needs to hit us, we need to understand both God's judgment and idolatry. Uh, We talk about this often, but idolatry is not just building and then bowing down to a wooden statue. Idolatry is putting anything other than God in the place of God and, and looking to that thing and trying to make it be God for you. And this is the fundamental sin we commit. Every other sin flows out of this one. My fundamental sin and your fundamental sin is committing idolatry. This is why Martin Luther says the first of the Ten Commandments is that you should have no other gods before me because anytime you break one of the other Ten Commandments, you've broken that one first. When you you lie and you murder and you covet and you commit adultery, you're doing it because you've put something other than God in the place of of God. This is why Micah starts his condemnation and his warning uh, against God's people with a critique of their idolatry because everything starts right here. But so often we read uh, about idolatry, especially in the Old Testament, and we just take ourselves out of the story. This surely could not be talking about us because and we're smarter than they are. We're not savages, we're civilized. We don't bow down to a piece of wood. We don't do stuff like this. Except that we do. You see, as you read through the Old Testament and you see Israel's idolatry, it's never that they're just bowing down to wooden statues. They are looking to the gods they believe this this statue represented, and they're looking to those gods to protect them and provide for them and keep their family safe, and give them stability. And it's never that they completely forget God. It's not that they become atheists. It's that they become polytheists. They worship multiple gods, and they think God will be able to be okay with that and coexist alongside of them worshiping multiple gods. And the same is true for the vast majority of us. The vast majority of us, the danger is not that we're going to become atheists and just turn away from belief in God. The danger for most of us is that we'll continue to push God to the margins of our life to make more room for our idols. We'll continue to worship God alongside of all these other things that we worship. Because the people of Israel, they were still going to the temple. They were still doing their religious rituals with God. They just looked to these other gods and sacrificed to them to ensure that their crops would grow and their family would stay healthy and things would go well for them. Because yeah, God could save them, sure, but the Red Sea and taking them out of slavery to Egypt, that was just so long ago. And I I mean, that wasn't even alive back then. And and you can't see God like you can see these other idols. And and He just seems so distant. And so you really couldn't trust that He's going to come through for you in the day-to-day stuff. Like yeah, God is good for church. He's good for Sundays. 
But Monday to Saturday, you've got to look somewhere else for that. And we do the same thing. You know, we think, yeah, God can get me to heaven. He can give me a get-out-of-hell-free card. He can give me some fire insurance, so I should probably go to church and, and try to live a pretty decent moral life, but make me happy, give me joy and meaning and purpose, like be the thing that drives my days. No, there's no way God could definitely do that. God is just so absent and distant from my life, and if I'm honest, other stuff is a whole lot better at giving me those things than God is. Because I can't see Him. I can't hear from Him. And getting recognized at work or spending time with my family or even just enjoying a good movie, it brings me so much more happiness or meaning or purpose or satisfaction than going to church or praying or reading my Bible ever has. And so we push God out of the picture. We relegate Him to a little corner and compartment of our lives But that still doesn't do away with our longing for meaning and purpose and significance because we were made for those. You and I long for the good life, for happiness, however we might define it, because we were made for it. And so even when we try to push God out of that place and push Him out of the picture, we still are going to long for those things and we need something else. So we put something else in that place to try to give us the good life and fill that longing, and that's idolatry. Idolatry is not just bowing down to a wooden statue. Idolatry is whatever you look to in your life and say, as long as I have that, I know I can be happy. As long as I have that, I know I'll be okay. Or if I can just get that, I know I will finally be happy and I'll finally be satisfied. An idol is whatever wakes you up in the morning to go get out of bed and pursue more of it, to go get more of it. An idol is whatever you're constantly finding yourself daydreaming about. An idol is whatever you look to to give you your ultimate meaning and purpose and significance. It's what you look to to tell you that you really are okay and that you really do matter. An idol is whatever you believe that if you just apply yourself well enough to it, if you just serve it well enough, that it will give you the good life. An idol is whatever you're using to try to calm down that gnawing sense of, there's got to be more than this. Truly, this can't be it. Maybe if I get this, then I'll have it. And so what is that for you? Because I promise you, it's something. A lot of us don't want to look down in our hearts and see what that idol actually is because it's dark and it's scary in there, but it's there. All of us are doing this. All of us have given in to this. That's why some of us are spending hours on social media in search of a validation that's just never going to be found there. That's why some of us are obsessed with managing our bank accounts to give us a sense of stability and security. That's why some of us have turned our children from people to love into projects to project our failed hopes and dreams on, feeling like if we can vicariously live through them and they turn out okay, then we'll turn out okay as well. It's why some of us are spending hours escaping into Netflix or into our phones to fill this sense and numb this sense of lack and boredom and exhaustion with life that we feel. All of us have taken some idol into our hearts and it's a dangerous matter to do so because idolatry destroys us from the inside out. You become like what you worship. So if you worship power, you're constantly going to be fearful and insecure. Because even when you have it, 
You're going to be fearful that you could lose it. You're going to be doing whatever you can to protect it. And when you don't have it, you're going to be insecure. If you worship the approval and the affirmation of others, you're always going to feel like you're just one more compliment, one more recognition away from not feeling like such a failure, from feeling like you really are okay, and it's just never going to get you there. If you worship uh, a sense of being in control... You're going to live in a constant state of anxiety because deep down you know you're not actually in control and try as hard as you might, you can't be in control. You can't get yourself there. Worshiping idols destroys us from the inside out, which is one of the reasons why God is so adamantly opposed to it and why He's threatening such intense judgment against it here in Micah chapter 1. But there's another reason why God is so adamantly opposed to our idolatry, and it's found in verse 7, when God, through the prophet Micah, says, I will lay waste her idols. From a fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they will return. What God is doing there is comparing idolatry to spiritual adultery, which is one of the major themes in the minor prophets. I mean, the the book of Hosea, the prophet Hosea spends his whole book explaining this metaphor that idolatry is actually spiritual adultery against God. Idolatry is not just breaking a rule, it's breaking a marital relationship. When God entered into covenant with His people at Mount Sinai, after He took them out of Egypt, the covenant that He entered into with them was a marriage covenant between God and His people. So to break that covenant and worship other gods is to commit spiritual adultery against God. And the same thing is true for us. So often we think that God and our idols can coexist, that that, that God will be okay with that, But that only works if we keep idols in the realm of rules to follow instead of in the realm of where they actually belong, in the realm of relationship. Like, what spouse would tell their partner, hey, I'm okay if you cheat on me six days a week. Really doesn't bother me at all. All I ask is that you stay here one night a week and maybe clean up the house a little bit from time to time. Like, that's ridiculous. No one would do that But we expect God to be okay with that. We think that God will be okay with that. That if we just throw Him a bone by going to church and trying to live a moral life, that He'll be okay with the fact that where we look for meaning and happiness and purpose and significance is anywhere else in our lives but Him. And that's foolish. When you commit idolatry, you are not just breaking a rule, you are breaking covenant with God. You're committing spiritual adultery and that deserves judgment. Because God's not just after your behavior. He's not just after getting you to follow His rules. He's after your heart. He's after your whole life being His. It's why He saved you into this marriage relationship so that you can know Him intimately. But not just that. God is threatening judgment against idolatry and against idolaters here in Micah 1 because God is just. Justice is essential to his nature and character. God created a good world and he created us good, but we brought sin and death and evil into the world. And if God is going to be a good God, he has to do something about it. God hates idolatry and sin because of how it destroys his good creation. So he can't just let evil and injustice and idolatry go unpunished. That would make him a terrible God. 
You do not want a God that looks at all the injustices and atrocities in the world and just says, whatever, you guys figure it out. I really don't care. Now, you want a God who cares about injustice uh, enough to actually do something about it, a God who cares about injustice enough to set every wrong back to right. But if God is going to do that, that puts us under His judgment because idolatry and injustice and evil and sin is not just something that the world does out there. It's us. Like this is describing us. We have all taken idols into our hearts and looked to other things to be and do for us what only God can be and do for us. All of us have committed evil and injustice in the name of sacrificing to our idol to try to get more of what we want from it. We are the ones who are being addressed by God's warning of judgment against idolatry here. And if God is going to be a good God and set His world back to right, He's going to have to judge us. He's going to have to get rid of us. Unless He provides the solution Himself. There are a few verses in the middle of the chapter that we haven't talked about yet that that even in the midst of this intense warning of judgment, give us a reason for hope. In verses 8 and 9, Micah kind of lets us in and lets us know what's going on in his heart as he gives God's word of judgment to his people. And what we see there in verses 8 and 9 is that Micah is not the type of preacher who just kind of skates into town, uh, gives a good turn or burn sermon on judgment, and then skates right back out of town. No, Micah says, because of the judgment that is coming upon my people... I'm going to lament and wail. I will mourn and weep over their sins. And he says he's going to go stripped and naked. This is what's going to happen to the people when Babylon and Assyria take them into exile. And so what Micah is doing here is he's expressing solidarity with his people. He's putting himself in their place because he's so broken over the judgment that they are going to face. But that's all that Micah can do. Because Micah's a sinner just like they are. Micah can't change their hearts. Micah can't pay for their sin. Micah can't keep them from going into exile. He can't do anything about this. The good news is that he points beyond himself to someone who actually can. You see, the the greatest picture of verses 8 and 9 is actually not the prophet Micah. It's Jesus. This passage is preaching the good news of Jesus to us because Jesus is the true Micah. He is the better prophet who comes not just to announce God's judgment against sin, but to actually take God's judgment upon Himself and pay for it. He comes as a man and He lives a life of complete faithfulness to God. He never gives in to idolatry. And after living that life of faithfulness, He goes and lays His life down on the cross. And at the end of His ministry right before he's going into Jerusalem to be crucified, he he looks out over the city of Jerusalem, and like Micah, he weeps over it. He is broken over the sin of his people. But Jesus goes even farther than Micah. Jesus expresses so much solidarity with us in judgment that he actually takes our place and substitutes himself for us. Because after weeping over the city, he goes into Jerusalem and he's uh, arrested and handed over in a sham trial, handed over to be crucified. And he is crucified on a Roman cross. And as 
He is crucified. Do you know what happens? The apocalyptic acts of judgment that Micah 1 describes. The, the, there's a massive earthquake as Jesus is crucified. As Jesus is crucified, uh, the sun goes dark for three hours in the middle of the day as Jesus absorbs the judgment of God for our sins. Jesus goes into exile for us and absorbs God's judgment in full. He drinks the cup until there isn't a drop left for us and He dies on the cross. He dies as a substitute and sacrifice paying for our sin, but He does not stay dead. He rises from the dead proving that He really did pay for our sins, that judgment for our sin really has fallen on His head and not on ours. The cross is how God can judge our idolatry and crush it without crushing us. The cross is how this warning in Micah can be good news, how it can wake us up to the dangers of idolatry so that we might run to Jesus to find freedom from it. Because not only does Jesus pay for our idolatry, His sacrifice on the cross purifies us from idolatry as well. You see, the cross at the same time, it shows us how wicked and serious our idolatry is. It took the death of the Son of God to pay for it. But at the same time, it shows us how powerful and transformative God's love is because Jesus gladly died for us to break the chains of idolatry, to break its power so that it would no longer have such a hold on us. Because in the cross, Jesus gives us all the things that we were looking for and could not find in idols. The cross shows us where to find meaning and purpose and significance in the fact that the God of the universe did not just create us, He freely died for us so that we could be reconciled to Him. The cross shows us that you matter to the one who matters most in the universe. The cross shows us that happiness and life and fullness of joy is found in living for Jesus. Any God who would go to the lengths of dying for us is a God we can trust to tell us what is best for us. The cross shows us that trying to find fullness of life in a job or in sex or in money or in a hobby or in family, all that is way too small that real life is found in dying to that small life and living for Jesus. The cross shows us that Jesus is better than idols. None of your idols can forgive you. None of them can sacrifice for you. They only ask you to sacrifice for them if they're going to give what they promise you and they never fulfill that promise. And when you fail your idols, when you don't do enough and serve well enough, they just mock you and leave you in a sense of hopelessness and failure. But when you fail Jesus, He died for you. He forgave you. See, God gives us this warning against idolatry and this promise of the gospel here in Micah chapter 1 so that we might fight our sins with these truths, so that we might not keep walking in idolatry and we might not make the same mistake that the Israelites did. And so here's what I want to call you to. Whatever it was in your life that, that the Holy Spirit brought to mind when we were talking about idols, whatever it is specifically for you, that, that you feel like, yes, this is where I've given my heart to something other than God. And make that the focus of your prayers and where you're going to preach the gospel to yourself this week. How does the gospel specifically show you that Jesus is better than that idol, than, than what you're trying to find in that idol? 
and identify that. Talk about that with somebody and then ask God for faith to believe the truth of the gospel there and keep asking him. Because we worship our way into sin. We do not think our way into sin, so we can't think our way out of it. We have to worship our way out of it. That ultimately, if our hearts are going to be changed, God has to do this work. And so praying about this and preaching the gospel to yourself, put yourself in the place for God to do this work. So look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Ask him for the faith to believe and keep asking him. Plead with him. Beg him until uh, he begins to do this work in your life. Look to Jesus and the Holy Spirit will start to transform your hearts so that you might love him more than idols. Look to Jesus and the Spirit will show you that he is better than anything you could give yourself to. Let me pray that we would. Jesus, thank you for the warning of judgment uh, here in Micah chapter 1. God, it is so easy for us to believe that, that idolatry really isn't a big deal, uh, that you know, we're still going to church, we're still reading our Bibles, we're still trying to live a good life. And so if our heart is drawn to other things, that's really not that big of a deal. God, would you use this warning to wake us up to the seriousness of this, that this will actually kill us uh, if we give ourselves to it. And God, would you also open, us, open up our eyes to the beauty of the gospel? Would you help us to believe that you are better than anything we could give ourselves to, that you have taken judgment for us so that we might be free from the power of these idols? God, I pray you would give us the grace to walk in that freedom. Would you help us to fight against our sin with the truth of the gospel? Would you help us preach ourselves hot and keep praying these truths in and preaching them to our hearts until we actually do believe them in our gut. God, help us to do so. I pray even now as we take the Lord's Supper and we sing and we talk to one another and, and seek to build each other up with our gifts, that you do this work even now and the rest of our time together this morning. Would you be gracious to do that? I pray that you would. In your name, amen.